0: Welcome to More Than 7 Dirty Words, the official FCC podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztrauber. One of the FCC's top enforcement priorities is cracking down on pirates. And no, not the pirates of the Caribbean or the pirates of East Africa. We're talking about pirate radio. Across the country, FCC officials are working to identify and take action against illegal, unlicensed radio operators using frequencies allocated for legitimate radio operators that are causing interference and other issues. So what is the state of pirate radio in the U.S., and how is the FCC taking it on? Well, joining me to discuss this topic is David Dombrowski, Regional Director for Region 1 in the FCC Enforcement Bureau. David, thanks so much for joining. You're welcome. Hi. So, David, you are uniquely qualified to talk about this topic, and uh, to help listeners understand just how qualified you are, how did you get to this current position at the FCC? Give us a little of your background.
1: Sure. I'm a Philadelphia native, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I graduated Temple University, and my first job was the FCC right out of college. And an Everyone's dream job. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> dream job. So I, I never left. I've been here for over 25 years, and I was hired into an engineering training program down in Norfolk, Virginia, where we got uh, classroom orientation in all the different radio services and the bureaus and offices for the FCC. And then they said to me, uh, well, here's 10 jobs that you potentially could have. Which one's your top choice? Yeah, you, know, you usually get one of your top, you know, first or second choice. Well, Media Bureau was on there, you know, the ones that licensed FM stations. And I kind of chose that as kind of my eighth choice. Well, that's what I, <laughs> that's what I, that's what I went up with. Uh, but it worked out great. It was a great career in the Media Bureau. It lasted three years there. And then I had an opportunity to get to the Philadelphia Office of Enforcement Bureau with the field work. And that's been – I was there for 20 years. I started as a field agent doing inspections and doing pirate radio enforcement as one of my jobs – And then I moved into senior agent position and then eventually the district director, which is the manager of the Philadelphia office. After the the reorganization and modernization of the field, uh, I then became the regional director and uh, managed several offices now.
0: Well, let that be a lesson to the youngsters listening. If you're given 10 choices, make sure the one you actually want is your eighth choice because that's (laughs) going to be the one that you get. Um, But uh, so when we say region one, I think even most people in the FCC – are not necessarily aware of how the country is carved up when it comes to enforcement and the field offices, etc. So can you give the listeners a brief sense of what do we mean by Region 1? What areas do you cover?
1: Yeah, so I have, in terms of population, I manage uh, 20 states in the northeast area of the United States. Oh, just 20. Yeah, just 20. <laughs> um, so it's not the, the in terms of size-wise, uh, for uh, mileage, it's the smallest region but it's the most populated. And I have four offices. It includes Chicago. It includes Boston, New York, and Columbia, Maryland. And so it, it, it uh, ranges from Maine down to Virginia and all the states east of uh, Missouri, Iowa, and Minnesota. All right,
0: so that's quite a large area. It and is. then based just out of those four offices, you then have to dispatch agents to 20 different states. So it's quite a big chunk of, uh, of the country in mm-hmm. terms of population. Um, Pirate Radio Uh, I apologize to the listeners in advance if I make any horrible corny jokes throughout the course of this podcast, but, uh, probably help to start with a definition, right? I mean, if you're familiar with telecom, you know, it's an illegal radio station, but what do we mean by pirate radio?
1: Okay. So a pirate radio by simple terms is a broadcast station operating in the FM band, uh, 88 megahertz to 108 megahertz that you dial up on your car radio that's operating without a license. Uh, so, when we license stations, you know, I worked, used to work in the FM branch, so I'm, I'm very knowledgeable about the process, but there's a whole legal and engineering study that has to be done before you get a license, and it, it, it takes resources to do that, financial resources. Once you get a license, uh, it restricts you where you can operate, how much power you can use, what antenna you can use, and where, how high your antenna is, and those parameters you know, restrict your operation and the coverage of your station because we have a whole engineering study that needs to be done so you don't cause interference to other stations. Well, what the pirate radio operators do is they don't obtain the license, they don't go through this process, and they try to find vacant spectrum between these stations. Some of those, you know, if you tune your dial, you find some spaces where you can, there's some dead air. Well, those are intentionally put there in order so that stations don't cause interference to each other. And so when a station operates say on 95.5 megahertz, they not only have potential to cause interference to 95 point, other stations on 95.5 that may be a little distance away, they also have potential to cause interference to the adjacent channel stations, you know, up, and, up above their frequency and below their frequency. So uh, that's why the licensing process is so important to avoid that interference. Now one thing I wanted to talk about is, is part 15. There's a lot of misconception about what a low power transmitter is. We do let uh, stations operate with low power transmitters, but they have to comply with uh, the technical requirements of part 15 of our rules. And those rules uh, dictate a lot of restrictions of, and, and cover your wireless transmitters that we use every day, remote controls for your car, uh, your headset Bluetooth uh, sets. We also uh, cover your wireless routers in your house. Uh, all those things have one thing in common, they're very low power, and the range of them are very small. So a transmitter that's, that complies with the Part 15 requirements uh, has, has a very small operating range, about 100 feet. Right. Which is, And so that's not practical for somebody that wants to operate a radio station to cover an entire community. So when they say, oh, I'm, I don't need a license to operate. I'm a Part 15 transmitter. Well, we have to do studies and, and measurements to see if that's true. And we do that at every power station. We do a field strength measurement to see if their power uh, exceeds that threshold and if they meet the Part 15 requirements or not. So they don't meet the Part 15 requirements, they need a license. And right. So that's what we do.
0: So everyone can now breathe a deep sigh of relief. You're not going to have to go out and get a license for your security camera and your garage door opener. There's a reason that those devices operate in an unlicensed manner, because— They're not transmitting very far. Now, many listeners, as you know, have the experience of tuning their dial, and there appear to be vacant channels. And you have said that one of the reasons for that is to guard against interference. But someone listening might say, well, why do we care, right? Like if a pirate, you know, gets his station up and running, he finds that no one's in a channel. He says, oh, I guess I'll just slot myself here. Other than the law, which is obviously important to some people, most people, it should be. <laughs> but why, why should we care that they're using vacant spectrum?
1: Yeah, well, just in the FM ban, particularly, if, if we just let everybody operate where they want it, it, it just creates chaos. And that's always been our argument, that it creates chaos in the spectrum. Our agency was delegated by Congress to uh, allocate frequencies and, and, and allocate it in the public interest. And it's a resource. It's a na- the frequency spectrum is a natural resource. And so our decisions that we make when we allocate spectrum is for the public interest. Uh, one of, so not only interference, but we also have issues of, of, uh, of interference to other radio services. Uh, it, it can be harmful if we let uh, a pirate radio station operate, because sometimes it causes interference to other services, like aeronautical communications. Uh,
0: and we're talking about air traffic control. Yes. And that's obviously of the highest importance when we're talking about public safety. So it's not just that a pirate radio station might be harming other radio stations, which is bad in and of itself um, and could pose a public safety risk with emergency communications. But we're talking serious stuff when we talk about FAA and air traffic control.
1: Yeah. So we get complaints from the FAA uh, quite often, uh, one or two times a month in New York, um, and that the pilots are flying over the city, and they're trying to communicate with air traffic control, and all of a sudden they pick up a radio station. So for that period of time, they they lose communications, and they... Have to try to find another available channel to keep that communication line open. So, right. you could call it a, a a catastrophe if if we you know let this continue. Do the
0: pilots only complain if it's a song that they don't like? Yeah,
1: <laughs> but some, you know they operate <laughs> in the AM band, so it it sounds really distorted when you're trying to listen to <laughs> FM radio on an AM radio. Yeah, that's probably why they're complaining, yeah. <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> so, uh, what is the current state of pirate radio? You know, um, is this a massive national problem? Are there particular areas where it's a problem? Um, has it evolved over the years? Has it gotten worse? Has it gotten better? Uh, give us a sense of the universe of this problem given that it is such a priority for this FCC to crack down on it.
1: Yeah, it's uh pirate has been around for decades. It's something we've been doing uh, as long as the equipment's been available. We've always had pirate radio operators. But what has made the problem uh, really ex- uh, expand is the equipment's readily available uh, with the internet now. So over the last 10 years, uh, people get online and purchase a transmitter and get it delivered to their door. And so that makes uh, you know everybody hobbyist now and to and to have an interest to start a pirate radio station yeah. because it's so available. Now
0: stop your Googling right now because <laughs> that is illegal, right? You it, it Just because it's easy to buy it doesn't mean it's legal. And I've had to make this clarifying point on other <laughs> podcasts that I've done at the FCC. We're not trying to teach you to do something illegal. We're trying to prevent you from doing something illegal. But So you can stop your Google search, but... Merely the act of purchasing this equipment is illegal, and partly that's because it comes from overseas and it's not been tested by the FCC, correct?
1: Yeah, if it's imported, it's, it's, a, it's illegal for companies to market equipment that hasn't gone through a, a, what we call a certification process, equipment authorization process, where they get a, a company to, to look at their transmitter to make sure it complies with our technical rules and doesn't have potential to cause interference to other radio services. And, and so these transmitters that they're purchasing and pirate stations are using do not go through the equipment process, the equipment authorization process. And, uh, and that is a problem. And so we need to make sure that uh, we stop the importation of this equipment. Uh, we stop the marketing of these illegal transmitters. So we have a team here in the Enforcement Bureau that does that, our Spectrum Enforcement Division. And uh, so we try to shut down the, you know, that equipment coming in. Uh, to to the purchasers but with Cousins border patrol seeing so much equipment coming in through the ports it's hard to identify they they label the equipment uh, as something else
0: right they're not advertising yeah, there's not a isn't... sign on the box that says illegal pirate radio transmitters and one of the reasons that they're causing harmful interference in particular to the FAA operations is because they they're not tested right so when the FCC licenses fm stations those stations are generally not going to interfere with aeronautical operations because we make sure that they're not. But if you're buying something off of the dark web or whatever and it's coming into the U.S., you don't know. And and uh, when we talked before the show, you mentioned that a lot of times with these FAA complaints, it's a malfunctioning transmitter. It's it not is. working properly, and that's why it's going into air traffic control.
1: Yeah, it may, not, it may not start to cause interference as soon as you open up and out of the box and operate it. But over time, with the heating up of the electronics inside, it starts to malfunction and cause what we call spurious emissions, where uh, signals are operating outside your intended band and cause interference to other radio services.
0: And obviously, as a good citizen, I have never, to my knowledge, uh, listened to a pirate radio station. That would be inappropriate, particularly given my employer. But um, (laughs) is it hard for the average listener, particularly in a dense metro area, you're dialing your car radio or your home radio? Um, to even know the difference? I mean, are there are there telltale signs? Or are some of these stations so sophisticated that it's really hard for the average person to distinguish?
1: There is a variety of pirate radio stations out there. Uh, they can be just talk radio stations, they could be religious broadcasters, or they could be full-fledged stations that have a staffing of 20 people that, that make commercials, that create the jingles for their station ID. And the ones that have more money and the more advertisers are the ones that are very hard to distinguish. Uh, a lot of times you could tell by the audio, audio quality. Uh, so some, somebody that hasn't invested a lot of money in the equipment and the signal processing to make it sound richer. Uh, you could tell uh, if, if you have an ear to it. Our agents can do that. But sometimes it is very difficult with those stations that have put more investment into the equipment.
0: Yeah, and it's also, I assume, illegal for these advertisers to be – advertising on pirate radio stations they just might not know that they're pirates
1: yeah we don't have a rule in the books that prohibits that from happening they're not considered the an operator right. uh, by investing in that uh, we do make them aware that they're contributing to this illegal activity uh, it might be illegal in terms of irs and about the taxes that aren't being collected off the exchange of funds and uh, the business that's going on behind doors
0: And we've talked a little bit about why this is a problem. Of course, the chaos of the radio spectrum was one of the reasons this agency was created in the first place, including our predecessor agency, the Federal Radio Commission. Uh, But there are other issues that broadcasters in particular complain about. I mean, they have a significant financial investment in their stations. They've gone through proper FCC process, and now they're competing for listeners with stations that did not go through that process, did not necessarily uh, bear the same financial burden to get up and running. And they're not just maybe competing with listeners, as we've mentioned, we've been competing with they're competing with advertisers as well. Is this something that uh, plays a role in alerting you to these stations that broadcasters themselves are identifying them and complaining about them?
1: Yeah, we've had meetings with broadcast associations where we went in the room with other broadcasters, and that's a very big concern for them—the financial end of it. They spent the, the fees they get the license. They also spent the, uh, uh, the regulatory fees that they have to, you know, spend. Uh, I think yearly, uh, and so, they have an investment in their in their service, and these license, uh, these unlicensed stations impede that. They lose advertisers because of it. Uh, they lose coverage area because of it. And it all comes down to dollars and cents. Uh, so that is a big concern for the for the broadcasters in those areas.
0: So let's say that either a broadcaster or a listener files a complaint. What happens then? What tools do, do you, your colleagues in the FCC, have to go about finding a station, shutting it down, bringing people to justice?
1: Yeah, this is the fun part, the direction <laughs> finding. So Yeah, we, we only to...
0: waited 15 <laughs> minutes into the episode to get to the fun part, so I hope you're listening.
1: <laughs> so the, uh, the complaint needs to tell us where they hear the station if we get that information we have a vehicle it's called a direction finding vehicle it has specialized equipment in it it's about two hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment uh it's a co- covert equip uh covert uh surveillance equipment like and an unmarked van it is uh, <laughs> Well, say exactly what it is but yeah it doesn't say <laughs> fcc pirate it. agent yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't have it's not it's not marked with pizza delivery guy either so, so uh, don't bother <laughs> looking for it <laughs> the so this equipment helps us track it down. It has a radio receiver in it, it has a computer screen with a map, and it has a little compass rose that tells us what direction the signal is coming from. So when we finally are able to pick up the signal in our car, we then drive in the area in, in kind of a circle around the source. We plot lines, we call lines of bearing on a map, and where they intersect is where this transmission uh, source is originating. Now that maybe gets us down to the building, you know, where, where it might be operating. You still have to get out on foot, and go out onto maybe the rooftop where the antenna is to confirm that that is the source. A lot of stations conceal their antennas. Uh, They hide behind things. They take the antennas down during the day, so they try to avoid detection. But our agents are are pretty smart on the tricks.
0: Right. And, of course, uh, just finding the antenna is not the end of the story because it's not like when you find the antenna, the uh, DJ is standing right next to the antenna being like, oh, you got me. Um, The antenna is not where the people are necessarily or where the rest of the equipment is
1: right there's a studio somewhere a lot of times the studio is not co-located with the the transmitter they use either the internet or a wireless source to get the signal back to the transmitter and so that impedes the investigation a little bit because it is difficult to find uh where that studio is located but we do we do a lot of interviews uh we do follow the breadcrumbs to where it leads us and a lot of times you are able to identify the operators and where the studio is and have success in in, in, uh, in getting the station shut down.
0: And it's important to clarify that uh, FCC enforcement agents are not law enforcement agents, but I was struck by how some of the work that goes into identifying and shutting down a station is like good old-fashioned police work, like knocking on doors saying, hey, have you seen anything weird? Have you seen people carrying around transmitters or antennas? That's part of it, right? And you rely on some cooperation in some instances to, to get it done, are people generally cooperative or are people just like, I have no idea what you're talking about? I've never seen anything. What is this? I don't want to deal
1: with this. Majority of the people uh, do not give us uh, truthful information. And so we, our agents have to be uh, trained to do interviews to know when people are telling the truth or not. And it may just require uh, keep asking the right questions and keeping after it. Uh, if they have some skin in the game, an operator uh, or a a landlord or a a property owner that lets somebody put a station up on their rooftop, you know, it's illegal for them to have that station there. We could, we have language to kind of consider them an operator. So uh, they could be liable for a fine. And we do issue them a warning letter. So hopefully that's enough for them to get the station, take it down and maybe share some information about who the real operator is.
0: Right. So sometimes the apartment owner, uh, the building owner or whatever is totally in the dark about this, didn't know about it. Other times, though, you might have reason to suspect that they're in on it. They're getting a kickback. Has that happened?
1: Oh, it happens a lot, especially in these urban areas like New York. Uh, There's always a building manager called the Supra, and uh, he has a shop down in the basement. A lot of times find the equipment down in his shop. Uh, He's taken uh, money from under the table to allow the station to operate from the rooftop without the property owner's knowledge. That happens a lot, and sometimes we find stations that just access the rooftops without anybody knowing, and put the transmitter kind of hidden in a wall somewhere or a crevice, and the antenna on the roof, and and remain uh, anonymous for for months without anybody knowing that the station's there.
0: Right, and you have tools to escalate the situation. Let's say you don't get cooperation from a building owner, you don't get cooperation from the eventual. Uh, studio. Maybe it's in their apartment. They're not opening the door, obviously, because uh, they don't want to get caught. Mm-hmm. So how do you escalate the situation? You know, What tools do you have to say, okay, we're not getting cooperation. Let's take this up a notch.
1: So we have fines that we could issue. We call them notices of apparent liability, where we'll find the operator. Um, we also uh, get the other federal agencies involved, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Attorney's Office, where we can seek a, a, a warrant, uh, the warrant's issued to the U.S. Marshals Service, actually, and that allows us uh, to go in with the U.S. Marshal Service and seize all the equipment that's associated with the operation of the radio station. Really anything physically connected to the transmitter. Uh, it, it could be computers, antennas, coaxial cables. We, we, we take it all. Uh, the U.S. Marshals actually seize it, they inventory it all, and then they sign it over to the FCC to hold. And then we finally get the courts to order that it's released to the federal government and it's our property. After that, we just destroy it through an electronics recycler. So all that that good equipment just uh, gets recycled. (laughs) Well, at least you're recycling. It's kind of sad to see, but... Recycling is good. Um,
0: So when it comes to local law enforcement, are they generally uninterested in taking this on or you know because you mentioned federal agents are often involved it's federal courts US Marshals Department of Justice um because we are a federal agency but have we leveraged the resources and the knowledge of local law enforcement in working on this are there you know different approaches from different states
1: so some states have uh, laws on the book that prohibit pirate radio operation there are states like New Jersey and New York and Florida So that's been great because now we can work with the local authorities, such as the police or the uh, the district attorney's office, and get them involved in the investigation. And they had the power to arrest and find people. And that's a pretty big deterrent when you show up uh, with all police officers uh, threatening to arrest somebody because they're operating a pirate radio station. So we've had the most success in getting stations uh, off the air when the district attorneys involved. Because U.S. attorney's offices, when we do the in-rem seizures, uh, they have a lot of casework uh, and very high-profile cases, so there's a little reluctance sometimes uh, because of the case precedents uh, for the U.S. attorneys to take on our cases. So the avenues of working with the district attorneys is a great way to get get the injunctions, the court orders for them to, to for the pirate station to, to cease operating permanently.
0: Right, just workload is another challenge. In addition to folks moving the antennas around or um, taking them down during the day, or only operating on. Week nights and weekends, as you've said, which forces agents to work overtime. Um, we've talked about other uh, challenges in densely populated areas, just like traffic jams. You're, you're driving around this van and you can't go anywhere because it's rush hour in New York City. Um, so, those are some of the challenges um, that you all have to tackle in taking on this important enforcement function. Now, of course, my favorite thing that I want to ask you is. What, it, what are some fun examples maybe not fun but interesting examples of cases that you've um, that you've closed or maybe the circumstances were a bit bizarre or interesting that might help a listener understand just how weird some of this can, stuff can get and just how um, interesting some of these operations can be
1: yeah we have a lot of stations in uh, New York for particular you have somebody that, puts the station on the air and then what that person does is it's he leases airtime for his station for other uh, DJ's and they come in and so he's getting a kickback from the DJ's and he's getting advertising revenue and so he kinda gets shielded right you know the operators Uh, who are operating the station because they they advertise their phone numbers and social media, and so we can easily identify them. But uh, you always have somebody that's the money guy uh, that's safely hiding behind all these other staff. Right, he's not the public face. Yeah, not the public face, but he's all the the behind-the-scenes guy. So we have a lot of those stations operating. So it's big revenue for them. Uh, We also had a case in, in Queens, New York, where several private radio stations got involved together, and they were using each other's equipment uh, in order to change location to avoid detection. They're also changing frequency, so they thought there was a way for them to avoid detection by hopping from building to building and frequency to frequency. Our agents uh, typically work in a certain area, so they become familiar with all the pirate radio operators, and they kind of they started to notice the pattern. And so we were able to gather all the evidence and go to the U.S. attorney's office and seize all that equipment and get the station off the air. There was a case that I worked back in Philly back in the day. Your hometown. Hometown. It, we we have pirate radio there too. Uh, not as bad as we did in New York. Um, this station was operated in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, which is right across the river of Philadelphia. And it covered the entire Philadelphia area. It was the strongest pirate station I have ever witnessed. It had a twenty. 20- Twenty mile range. Is that a point of pride for you from Philadelphia? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they had their antenna up really high. It was a it was a very uh, it was a three bay antenna for any of those techies out there. Uh, so it was a high efficient antenna, a very high power transmitter. But the interesting thing about this was that it was operated by a group of people who consider considered themselves Moors, which are indigenous uh, indigenous people for, of the United States who were here before the United States was colonized. Right. And so they said, well, because we were here before it was colonized, our federal laws don't apply to us. So we typed up this. They showed me a license, and it was something typed up on the computer that said, we're licensed uh, by their statutes of, of the Moors uh, people. And and so they felt that they have a right to operate. Well, we did go to the courts. We got the, the warrant and the U.S. Marshals went in with us, and we seized the equipment. Interesting thing, the antennas was so high up in the tower, we had to bring a, a, a bucket truck in from a fire station. And That's some great local it, cooperation right there. Raise it all the way up 100 feet, and our, our director at the time uh, rode up there and got the antenna down. And it was good media coverage, too. There were helicopters flying over and taking videos, so we got on a little, little TV. And that helps go a long way when we get a little media coverage. Uh, it helps to show that uh, that's a deterrent in itself right there when you get media coverage.
0: Right. Now, some folks might be asking themselves, this is all great. I totally agree that pirate radio is bad, and I think that you should absolutely go after it. But what about the First Amendment? Do we have a right under the First Amendment to speak via a radio station, even if it's unlicensed by the FCC? And is there potentially a case that can kind of exemplify why pirate radio is not protected under the First Amendment?
1: Yeah, there was a case back in in the 1990s, late 1990s. It was an operator named Stephen Dunifer. He was out of Berkeley, California, and his station was called Radio Free Berkeley. And so he brought this argument up when we tried to get his station off the air by using the court uh, proceedings. And he fought that we were violating his uh, First Amendment rights. And he had some good backing, financial backing, by the uh, ACLU uh, who were fighting for him. Uh, and he was a micro-broadcaster, and he tried to encourage others to follow in his footsteps and, and, and protect their First Amendment rights. So a he was A pirate like,
0: evangelist. <laughs> yeah, he was
1: going around the country and, and stirring the pot and, and getting a lot of people excited about micro-broadcasting. So that's really where it started to really proliferate. And then he had—you know, he was on the Internet. That's right when the Internet really started exploding, so he got—he was able to get his message out. Uh, so we eventually went to the courts and fought. The FCC argued that we were here to— regulate the air the airwaves. It would create chaos if if, uh, if we allowed them. And we were able to prove that it wasn't a, a violation of the First Amendment rights. And so that set the presence for any future case and for that argument.
0: Right. Now, when we talk about enforcement actions, you know, I'd like to kind of paint a picture for our listeners. Are we talking about U.S. Marshals with machine guns kicking in doors? Or are we talking about politely knocking on a door and saying, "Hey, guys, your time's up. We found you." Um, you know, what's the image that essentially you see when this goes down in your experience, or is there kind of a spectrum of different cases? Some are a little bit more intense than others.
1: Well, it's all—it it's, depends on what level we're at with the investigation. If it's a—if we're out there just gathering evidence for the first time, our agents will go to the door. Uh, they'll identify themselves with their badge. Again, they're not law enforcement, so we don't have weapons. We usually go with the police just for our protection, and also for the for the protection of the uh, the occupants inside the residence. Uh, we try to interview them. It's a very calm, uh, peaceful. That's what our agents are trained to do because it it works a lot more in, in, in getting the truth of what's going on, uh, rather than being threatening and forceful. Uh, after that, when we don't get compliance, when somebody gets a warning letter and comes back on the air, and then we do get the warrant with the U.S. Marshals, yes, they come with weapons. They, we've, we've been at in-rem seizures, we call them, uh, where the U.S. Marshals uh, come with the local f- law enforcement, and there's 20 of them, and they have to secure the, the whole block off. They have to secure the building for our protection, and they come. I've I've worked with them when they have uh, bulletproof vests on and, and automatic weapons.
0: Because you don't know what you don't you're know. running into. Exactly.
1: Some of these are in high crime areas where there's a lot of drugs. Uh, we've had cases where we've gone in on in-rem seizures and found drug paraphernalia uh inside the, the building. And so that becomes now a law enforcement issue and they take care of that. And they handle that situation. But they secure the property for us uh, so that we feel safe going in there. And then we help them identify what equipment we need to seize. And so, yes, they're... We may uh, – we have a warrant for the property. We do contact the property owner before we uh, execute the warrant to let them know we're at the door. And we don't want to break the door down, but we need them there to open it. If we can't get touch with the property owner, we try to use a locksmith. And if we can't get the locksmith, then the door comes breaking down. And All right. we try to secure it before we leave.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of like a, a cascade of it options. Is. And you mm-hmm. always try to go with the least destructive the least, one. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, So there are no doubt some good Samaritans listening to this show that want nothing more than to help with the scourge of pirate radio. What can the average person do? Let's say they're listening. They think something's suspicious. They get a tip. They see something weird in their building. What can they do to help you and the FCC tackle this problem?
1: So we have two ways to file a complaint. We have a call center. It's 888-CALL-FCC, where we have staff there during business hours to take a complaint. But the easiest way to, to file a complaint is go online. If you just use an internet browser and search FCC complaint, you'll come to the link uh, for filing a complaint. Now, if you go to that menu, there are several options of different radio services. If you click on radio, you'll come to a page where you can input your, your address and your phone number and email and a description of, the, of what, you know, what you're experiencing. And that's where we ask for the public's help. We want them to be as descriptive as possible. If they're getting interference to a station they like to listen to, what station is that? Give the call sign. Where are you hearing this interference problem? Be specific. Give me an address or an intersection in the town that you're picking it up on. When do you hear the station? Is it when you're driving in, you know, to and from work? Do you hear it any other time? You know, At nighttime, do you hear it on the weekends, or is it only, an inter- uh, is it only a station that operates uh, during the weekends? That's really helpful because then we can know when to send the agents out. Uh, Our agents will contact you, we'd like to contact you. That doesn't prohibit somebody from filing an an anonymous complaint. We still take those. We also recommend that the complainant uh, contact the station that they're getting interference to. The legitimate one. The legitimate one, the licensed station, and let them know. Some stations think that it's, it's best to flood the FCC with complaints. It's not. It takes a lot of time to process just one complaint. And, and so it's distracting our agents of getting into the database and, and populating all the fields and calling the complaint. So we'd rather take one single complaint from a broadcast licensee saying, hey, I've gotten 50 listener complaints in this area. Here's where we're hearing it. Do a little legwork yourself. Verify that it's a uh, unlicensed station. And then we could work with them and getting the station off the air. And they also will be able to contact us and, uh, and find out where their complaint uh, is in, in the queue and what you know, how, what's going on with the complaint. Have we investigated it yet? You know, if, When they do that, they get a ticket number when they file the complaint online. So the broadcasters can call us and, and find out, let us know that they filed the complaint and follow up with us. They don't know how to reach us. They can call their state broadcast association to get our contact information.
0: Gotcha. And I'm glad you mentioned call signs because that could be A potential suspicious uh, signal is that pirate radio stations, because they're illegitimate by their very nature, are not doing typical radio station things like announcing their call sign at the top of the hour or doing certain uh, regular scheduled activities. So that could be uh, something that might mean you're listening to a pirate station now. This is not just a focus of the FCC. Congress is also interested in this. They have a bill circulating around called the PIRATE Act. Of course, it's called the PIRATE Act, and that stands for <laughs> Preventing Illegal Radio Abuse Through Enforcement
1: Act. Yeah, very creative on that. Oh, bill, yeah.
0: I mean, you, you got you to give it to Congress for the, for the bill naming that they do. Um, what would that bill do differently?
1: Well, there was a version of the bill that passed the House first, and now there's uh, a similar bill in uh, being considered by Senate. But if we signed into law, we would have uh, some additional resources. First, increasing the fines. Right now, it's $10,000 per day per occurrence. That would allow us to increase the fine to $100,000. 10 times as much. That's big. Yeah. and an overall limit of $2 million. Um, We also would be required to file a report to Congress annually on our, our enforcement activities in Pirate Radio. We'd also have to create a database for the public access it would identify what are the legitimate stations and also identify what stations we sanction, so they could better uh, get an understanding you know is this a legitimate station my hearing or not and another thing also we would have to direct our attention annually to five markets that are most affected by pirates we would do some step up enforcement
0: and those uh, and um, I think we we mentioned New York um, we mentioned Philadelphia. There are there other hot spots in particular where this seems to just be a bigger problem than elsewhere in the country?
1: Yeah, that's hard to say. Uh, I know, in at least in our region, we get them everywhere. We get them in Virginia. We get them out in Illinois, even, even just remote areas of West Virginia. They pop up. Uh, more areas, more than just the urban areas, uh, I know out in the West Coast in California, you, we have some more significant numbers in other areas. So that probably would be one of the five markets identified. Maybe your LA area would probably be uh, another market that we would look at.
0: Yeah, and those dense urban areas, because the FM band is already pretty clogged up with legitimate stations, that might be one of the reasons that people throw up their hands and say, well, I guess I'm just going to do an illegal station because I'm frustrated by the legal process for getting a station. But that is not a justification in any sense of the word.
1: Um, it's not, but they, you know, but they, we didn't talk about it. They There are other legal ways to, to go about it. They could stream. I mean, stream. Right. A lot of these stations are streaming at the same time. So it really boggles my mind why an FM station that's unlicensed. You know, it has its stream content and then also it's broadcasting over. They could the stream
0: airways. it just like this podcast we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> we're not using also, any FM spectrum for this podcast.
1: And there's a lot of digital uh, FM stations out there that are looking for programming, so they could maybe work out at least some like channels, yep. yeah. At least some airtime off these legitimate stations. Yep. So you
0: have options. Well, I want to, you know, just emphasize the importance of this issue. You know, there was a glowing article in a certain New York publication that uh, at least one FCC commissioner was irked by because it seemed to be kind of glorifying this underground um, practice and and making it seem like some interesting thing. But you really got to keep in mind, not just the radio stations that are interfered with, but Emergency communications. Radio plays such an important role when you talk about hurricanes, striking, or other natural disasters. People turn to their local broadcast, including radio, for information. And to have that be interfered with is a public safety concern, let alone the FAA issues, which are very serious. So just keep in mind next time you read some uh, nice hipster article about how great pirate radio is in your community, that there are serious issues at play and what the FCC is doing is really important. And that's why it's so great to have you on here to share your perspective and some of your history working on this. Um, And we really just want to thank you for your service.
1: Thank you. I was glad to be here. It was a great opportunity.
0: My guest has been David Dombrowski, Regional Director for Region 1 in the FCC Enforcement Bureau. Find this podcast in the iTunes Store or Google Play or wherever you get your podcast, Please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. I will put in the show notes a link to the FCC complaint page and the phone number if you would uh, like to get That's involved. not going to be my cell phone, is it? No. <laughs> that would be uh, not a good practice. I oh, <laughs> And uh, that's it. We will catch you next time.